0: Father, again, we thank you that we can come before you to continue this topic, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to come in this room, continue to give wisdom, guidance, and we thank you for what you will do. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Several of y'all have been asking me where you can get the book. I have a booth. You know, they have several ministries with booths right down at the meeting place. We have a booth there, Be in Good Health. Um, We have um, not only this book, but we have a little book that I wrote on using the laws of health to treat depression. And we have various CDs and DVDs. In fact, I have this book on on actual audio book, the the same book on the dangers of secular psychology and some other things you might be interested in. So come down and visit us. My husband and I have a full-time ministry now where we do seminars, health seminars. He was trained through um, correspondence and then a little bit of campus work through Uchi Pines. So we do some work with that. Um, And then I'm also starting to get back into the counseling realm again because there is a great need. I get calls all the time. So keep our ministry in prayer, okay? Let's move on talking about Satan's alluring path. If we could get it on the screen, let's see here. Uh, Let's see. All right, well. I'll, um, let's talk as as I do this. This second part, we're going to be looking at some of the different concepts that have come into to our world as Christians that are affecting us through secular psychology. And we use a lot of words, and we don't recognize that some of these words, um, <clears throat> some of these words, have a lot of secular psychological roots. One of the words we use a lot is self-esteem. We talk to people and say, you know, they have a low self-esteem, and we throw that word out and we don't recognize that there are not a lot of biblical roots for that word, Uh, and we're going to have some verses up there to to kind of support that, but many of these things, there we go, praise God, many of these things we don't realize has been something that Satan has brought in to turn us away from God's true way. How many of you have heard of Abraham Maslow? Abraham Maslow actually says, I sometimes think that the world will either be saved by psychology in the broadest sense, or else it will not be saved at all. So his belief was psychology will save the world. I thought that after I finished graduate school. I said, I'm going to go and mix psychology with what we know as Adventist, and I'm going to help the Adventist families and marriages in our churches, because this information I have is so wonderful, and I'm going to do a lot of helping. It didn't happen. So I had the same kind of belief that Maslow has. And a lot of us psychologists believe that. You know, when you deal with the mind, it places you in a really superior kind of mindset. I don't know if you realize that. People will say to me sometimes, when I tell them I'm a psychologist, they'll say, what am I thinking right now? (laughs) You know, they really give us a lot of power. And we don't recognize that. And that's why I think, I really believe these are one of the areas that Satan just loves, because he can really you know, let this mind be in you. He can really move us away from having the mind of Christ because of the fact that psychology deals with the mind. So self-esteem, I mentioned that. Let's look at some things. This is Carl Rogers. Some of you have heard of him. And Carl Rogers was a, one of the psychologists who really pushed this self-esteem idea. He's, um, this is another person, Eric Fromm. I'll talk a little bit more about Rogers in a minute. Eric Fromm says, The doctrine that man is selfish and has nothing good in himself is not healthy and promotes self-hatred. So when the Bible says there is um, none righteous, no, not one, and these kind of things, Fromm would say, oh, these poor Christians just breeding self-hatred. And then in the book Hidden Heresy, written by Pastor Mostad I mentioned earlier, the one who talked about the Baptist professor, he mentions a televangelist who we all know. I'm not going to mention the name. Someone warned me about doing that, and I listened to them saying this goes all over the world, so don't mention people's names. If you come up to me later on, I'll tell you who it is. Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. That's how this person defines um, sin. Anything that robs that you of your self-esteem. The same Italian evangelist says to be born again means we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image, from inferiority to self-esteem. That's what it means to be born again. And this person has a huge church. I'll say even more, and you may figure out here, right here in the state of California. Need I say more? Okay. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this self-esteem high idea has even come into the church. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. In our hymnals, there's a uh, hymn called uh, um, At the Cross. The wording of that was changed based on the self-esteem idea. Look at this. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head, it used to say, for such a worm as I. Now it says, alas, and did my savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for someone such as I? Now I don't believe when the hymnal people sat down at general conference that they said, you know, we need to rate people's self-esteem, so let's change the wording. I think it's so invasive, so pervasive, that we don't recognize that this idea of you can't tell people they're worms. They're not gonna grow and become better people. We need to recognize that people are people. Someone such as I. Do you all see this? And the idea is that we have to raise self-esteem for people to feel better. This self-esteem movement is really almost the foundation of this whole contemporary Christian music movement. I don't know if you recognize that. This is a person who left it. I don't know how many of you all have read this book by Dan Lucarini. He's a Sunday keeper. Wonderful, powerful book. He says, in my own experience, I noticed we contemporaries, these are the people who follow the contemporary Christian music movement, preferred to raise our faces and hands up to God and call that worship. I thought back to when I would first change my personal worship style from bowing my head to looking up. I remember the good feeling it gave me that I was for the first time a participant in worship with God, not some lowly, there's that word, worm, who had to prostrate myself. And then he says, I felt what? Better about myself. So this whole way of worship has some roots in this self-esteem movement, because now we're worshiping in a way that'll make us feel good about ourselves. You know, in the Bible, sometimes people would come and just basically fall flat on their faces. Remember before God? You know, but that was putting down their self-esteem too much. Now we have to raise our self-esteem and worship in a different way. Unfortunately, it's even coming into some of our publications. Listen to this. The first thing Jesus does is to tell Simon Peter the work he's going to have him to do. Perhaps Jesus, knowing Peter's what? Lack of self-esteem, immediately told him of his important task in order to help Peter Peter understand that although he was a sinner, Christ not only accepted him, but was going to trust him with important work. So this Sabbath School lesson lesson author believes that Peter had low self-esteem. Now, the Peter that you know, Did he have low self-esteem? No. The Peter I read about actually had the opposite problem. He thought too much about himself. But we take on this thinking and start to look at Scripture through the eyes of psychology, eyeglasses of psychology. Remember I talked about that in the first session? And we don't even realize what we're doing. And it's affecting us in all different ways. Let's look at the truth about self. Matthew 16, 24. Um, can someone pa- find that for me and if you could read it loud actually I'm going to give you the mic because the last time I did this it didn't come on audio verse so if you're going to read I'm going to give you the mic and um, I am gonna want a different voice so someone can just read it for me I'll, I'll put the mic towards you so you can okay
1: oh. then said Jesus unto his disciples if any man will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me
0: so what does that verse say? How does that fit with self-esteem? It doesn't. Self-esteem is just the opposite of that. Okay, let's see if we could go forward here. Self-esteem is just the opposite of denying ourselves and taking up the cross and following him. Now, we're going to give the balanced perspective on this in a moment, unless you're getting scared, okay? There is a balanced perspective on this. Dying to self is the best way to deal with our self-image. I found this quote and I had to share it with you all. This is something I stuck in at the last minute. When we are dead to self, we are less hurt by criticism, Uh others who outperform us, those who are more popular, those who don't like our ideas. The only way we can become invincible to this is if we crucify self and follow the humble pathway to Jesus. This thinking is completely opposite to what psychologists are telling us. If you always focus on esteeming self, building up self, you will be affected by everything that happens around you. But if you follow the biblical injunction that says die to self, some of those things will not affect you as much. You see, again, the great controversy going on, Sorry. Satan saying this way, God saying this way. Sorry. It's being outplayed as we look at these concepts. Another one, death to self is rarely an attractive alternative. That should be a small a. But it is the foundation of peace and contentment. This is the basis of Paul's counsel in Philippians 2, 3, 4. And right after that is the theme for this conference, Let this Mind Be In You, which is also in Christ Jesus. <laughs> yes?
1: Who wrote that book?
0: I'll tell you later. I was advised by um, one of the people who actually uh, was one of the mentors for GYC not to put their name on there for a particular reason. I'll tell you later. Okay, Um, Philippians 2, 3. um, I believe that's the verse that said, let each esteem others better than themselves. That does not fit, again, with what uh, psychologists are telling us. Bible says, esteem others. Psychologists are saying, esteem yourself. Contradictory ideas there, Okay. We must realize that we are in Christ's school not to learn how we may esteem ourselves, but how we may cherish the meekness of Christ. Self and selfishness will ever be striving for the mastery. It is a fight that we must have with ourselves that self shall not have the victory. And if we're supposed to be fighting against self, but we're starting to esteem self, the two cannot go together. It's one or the other. She also tells us, if you will sincerely humble your hearts before Him, empty your souls of self-esteem, and put away the natural defects of your character, He will bestow on you His Holy Spirit. Now granted, I've had some psychologists say to me, now you know, when she said self-esteem, it's a little different than what we're talking about as self-esteem. And that's true, technically. But the underlying principle is the same. The underlying principle is if you, if you try to uplift and puff self up, it will go against what God wants to happen with your character. Now, this is the balanced perspective on this. The Lord is disappointed when his people place a low estimate upon themselves. He desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. God wanted them, else he would not have sent his son on such an expensive errand to redeem. Sometimes when we're presenting this information on self-esteem, I've heard people do this who's against psychology and against self-esteem. They're presenting it, and people walk out thinking that I should have my head down all the time and just think terrible about myself. That is not what God is saying. That's why I like to give these balanced perspectives. God wants us to have a proper sense of self-worth, but he does not want us basing it on how we appear, what our achievements are, where we live, what degree we have. This is basically what the secular world is saying. He wants our value to be based on what Christ has done for us. You all see the difference? Um, For as much, that's why Peter says, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Can you get any more expensive than that? As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And I just wish, I think back to some of the people that I helped build their self-esteem, and it was on, based on just sinking sand. And if I could go back and work with all those people and say, let's do this all over again, and let me point you to Christ and show you how he can give you a better sense of self-worth. But I can't redo that. All I can do is pray for them and ask the Lord to lead them to someone who will show them the true way. It's just, this is another powerful quote. It is not pleasing to God that you should demerit yourself. God does not look at you in a pleasing way when you put yourself down all the time. You should cultivate a self-respect, but this is how, by living so that you will be approved by your own conscience and before men and angels. While we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, the word of God does not condemn a proper self-respect. As sons and daughters of God, we should have a conscious dignity of character in which pride and self-importance have no part. There is a whole section in mind, character, and personality where she talks about self-respect and she talks about different things that will pull down our self-respect. She talks about teaching people how to support themselves that builds self-respect. She talks about how I may treat you and how that builds my self-respect. She talks about even self-abuse and how's that everybody knows what self-abuse is, right? masturbation, if you don't know what that is, and how that reduces self-respect. All of these things, people are suffering from not feeling good about themselves, but it's not so much of why, what psychology says, but it's because they're engaging in all these th- different types of behaviors and not responding to the Holy Spirit that, in the way that they could. That's putting down their view, their view of themselves and not building their self-respect. Are we on the same page? You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's not that we want you to go around beating yourself up, but we want you to have the right perspective in terms of how you're viewing yourself. Now, the world is also starting to tell us this. Written in Monitor Psychologists, which is a a monthly book that we as psychologists get when we're part of the American Psychological Association. Listen to this study. College students who base their self-worth on external sources, including appearance, approval from others, and even academic performance reported, look at this, high stress, anger, academic problems, relationship conflicts, and high levels of drug and alcohol use and symptoms of eating disorders. Those who tried to boost their self-esteem based on these things. Students who base their self-esteem on internal sources, such as being a virtuous person or adhering to moral standards, what does that sound like? The quote I just read, living so that you are proved before God, men, and angels. That's saying the same thing. Adhering to high moral standards. We're found to have higher grades and were less likely to use alcohol and drugs or develop eating disorders. So those who are focusing on the world around them to base how they look at themselves, they were more likely to have problems. Well, those who were looking at how I could develop my characters, basically what they're saying, didn't have as many problems. And Listen to what the secular psychologists say. We really think that if people could adopt goals not focused on their own self-esteem, but on something larger than their self, then they would be less susceptible to some of the negative effects of pursuing self-esteem. Isn't that amazing? You notice earlier, when we first started out, I said, I base things on Bible, spirit, uh, inspiration and true science. And the way I determine what true science is, when the scientists say something, I go back and see what Bible and inspiration says. And that will help me determine whether or not this science is true. And I, that also happens, by the way, as a side note, in the health world, the, health, the whole health message. And you know, everybody's grabbing on to different things about building health. And people say to me, because my husband and I talk to people about health sometimes, they say to me, well, how do you know the difference? I mean, one pre- person is saying 100% raw, another person is saying cook everything. You know, How do you know the difference? And we simply say to them, well, there's a woman who we believe in who was inspired, who's written a lot of information on health, and we check everything against her. Oh. They say to us, that's interesting. But we have to have some type of guidebook when we're looking at science, and this applies in this case as well. That's why Paul says in Galatians, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I'm starting to understand more and more about saying, and when the servant of the Lord tells us that the cross should be the central theme of everything we do, I'm starting to see that practically now. I used to hear people say it, and I used to verbalize it myself, but I didn't understand it. But as I'm looking at more and more of how to help people, how to help myself, I'm seeing that everything comes back to the cross, comes back to the cross, and also Christ's mediation in the heavenly sanctuary. And it's starting to make more sense to me. Now, this one is a little more difficult sometimes when i'm finished with it people still have questions if you have questions you can talk to me whenever you see me on campus or anything but i'll we'll try and see what we can do this is another phrase that we hear a lot of people saying unconditional acceptance and unconditional love now always keep in mind when i talk about these there's truth and there's error okay let's keep that in mind this person right here is eric Fromm. we talked about him earlier and he's the one that introduced that idea of unconditional acceptance and love. The basic definition of unconditional acceptance is that we accept, value, and are positive toward another person regardless of that person's behavior. Does that sound good? There's some truth to that, isn't that? There's some truth to it. Um, and then there's some error to it as well. <laughs> People need to be accepted and loved unconditionally without any conditions of performance. There's some truth to that. You want to know someone loves you because of who you are, right? Right? Okay. And then there's some little bit of problems in there, too. The problem comes right here. This is what this is based on. People are born what? Thus, if they are loved and accepted unconditionally, they will naturally blossom into their best self. That's what this unconditional acceptance and unconditional love concept is based on, that we are born good and what makes us bad is the bad environments that we grow up in, the bad ways our parents treat us, the bad ways our teachers treat us. But if we're just left alone and not told what to do and just accepted because we're born good, we'll just develop into just good people. Socrates and Plato had the same philosophy of human beings. They had the philosophy of innate goodness way years before. We are born good, and it is our environment that causes us problems. So this goes way back in history, this idea. So it's coming to the church, and this pastor says, the minimal guarantee we must make to people is that they will be loved always, under every circumstance, with no exception. The second guarantee is that they will be totally accepted without any reservation. So when people come to church, they should be totally accepted, loved, not told anything because they're bo- we're born good and we will just naturally just develop into the people Christ wants us to be. Is that true? No. The, cross- the, the uh, contemporary Christian music movement is based on that. It, the whole idea is, and that's why people are now, well, let's go on, I'll tell you. Unconditional acceptance doctrine is so pervasive to some fellowships that Christians are no longer allowed to question another Christian's behavior or personal preferences. If you confront another in love, you will be accused of what? Judging Judging them. If you dare quote chapter and verse from the Bible, you will be called a Pharisee. If a church has practices that step on the toes of anyone's personal preferences, then it is considered to be a legalistic church. So this idea has come in and has somehow taught us that, you know, we shouldn't really say anything to anybody. We have to just unconditionally accept them and love them. And again, there is a little bit of truth to that. We don't want to hammer people on the head when they come in with things because we want folks to grow in the grace of knowledge of God. But there are some places for teaching and sometimes the Holy Spirit may impress us to share something with someone. So let's look at the truth. First of all, she tells us if Satan can so befog and deceive the human mind and lead mortals to think that there is an inherent power in themselves to accomplish great and good works, they cease to rely upon God to do that for them which they think exists in themselves to do. They acknowledge not a superior power, they give not God the glory he claims and which is due to his great love. Uh, great and excellent majesty, and I'm just going to jump down. Satan knows that the ruin of man is just as sure if he exalts himself as his was certain. So Ellen White is here talking about the fact that this idea, she didn't know that From and all of them was going to come up with these theories, or she might have, but the idea is if we look to some inherent power in ourselves with such good people, we won't see a desire or a need for something outside of ourselves such as God to help us. Romans 3.12, someone pull that up for me, read that for me if you can. I'm gonna give you the mic again. Romans 3.12, tell us what that says. Someone right up here can do that for us. Can you do that for us? Just put this right here.
1: They are all gone out of the way, they are together became unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one.
0: Okay, I mentioned this earlier. Thank you, sister. That the Bible tells us there there's none that doeth good. This idea that we're born with goodness in ourselves is really not biblical at all. None that doeth good. Then Romans 8, 7 tells us the carnal or natural mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So this idea that we're born good, really we have a carnal mind naturally. And that Um, carnal mind will not draw us towards goodness. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we're drawn to goodness, even with those who don't acknowledge God. So this idea, and I'm I'm mentioning all of this because the basis of unconditional love and acceptance is the idea that we're born good. And and as, as I love to hear Dr. Pippen say, what has happened is that we pick the fruit, but we don't look at the root. So we may use the word unconditional love, un- unconditional acceptance, not recognizing what that root is. And that's why I'm spending so much time helping you to understand the root. Jeremiah 14.10 is another verse, if someone can find that for me. Maybe this sister right up here, do you mind reading that for us? Jeremiah 14.10. I just want to give you some birth- verses because we need to be comparing line upon line, precept upon precept as we study these concepts and be able to support biblically or tear down biblically the problems with these.
1: Go ahead. Okay, this is what the Lord says about his people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their fate. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. So
0: what does it say? Does the Lord accept them? So does he always have unconditional acceptance? No. There's going to come a time when he, he will not accept. In this, in this particular verse, he was talking about the children of Israel who continued in their sins after they were told time and time again by different prophets, and they continued. After a while, the acceptance was not there. He actually says, I will no longer accept them. So this idea that God just unconditionally acceptes, accepts and loves us, it may start out that way, but um, the problem is because of how our minds are, we don't recognize that there is some point where the limits to his love and acceptance will be reached. And you know, the problem with this that I also see, it affects us in our worship styles. It affects us in all of our lifestyle. I don't know, and some of this I may be hitting a little too close to home, but I'm, I, I, you, I'm not going to see you again, so I have to tell you the truth, okay? <laughs> I'm getting a lot of postcards, and you may get them too from churches in the surrounding area, um, non-advantaged churches mostly, but it'll say, come to my church. Come as you are. Church the way it should be. You'll be accepted for who you are, you know. And I think about this unconditional acceptance thing, and I see that creeping into our church where it's, you know, um, just, just come anyway. It doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter what you do. God accepts you and loves you. Very fine line there because there is some sacredness that we're losing in our services with this type of thinking. And I just have to throw that out there for you to think about, um, we don't want people, there are some people who can't do better in terms of their dress. They don't know better. But for those of us who know better, God holds us to a higher standard. And I think we're losing some of that. Good, yes. I heard you say that God has
1: limits to his love and acceptance. Yes.
0: But then we're told to love the sinner, hate the sin. Right. When I mean mean limits, well, well, the verse we just read in Jeremiah 14.10, when he says, I will not accept them. The limit to his love um, will happen when, at the end of time, I thought there was a verse here, if he had unlimited love, will God, would Adam and Eve still be in the garden?
1: He still loves
0: them. He, st- he, he loves them regardless, but there's limits to, I sh- maybe a better way might be saying there's limits to what he does with that. Unconditional love would say, no, let them stay in the garden, because there's no problems with them. Not the way psychologists explain it. Yeah, that's what what I'm telling you. Look at the roots. Psychologists don't look at it like that. Do you remember Benjamin Spock? Do you remember Dr. Benjamin Spock? Where he said, do not punish your children, do not beat them. That's according to psychologists it is. You understand what I'm saying? What you're saying is correct, but your explanation is not the explanation that's given for unconditional love and acceptance. If you study the psychological literature, it's not saying what you're saying. What you're saying is correct. You'd have to study it well, to understand so it. Okay, let's move on. We can talk about that afterwards. Okay, um, Revelation 20:15 talks about the fact that I think it says that at the end of time, that those will be thrown into the lake of fire. I don't remember the exact verse here. Somebody help me with that. 20:15, if you could read that for me. That's right. So God has limits, even, even in that strange act where um, he will be showing, I guess, some love because she does say that people will be miserable if they go to heaven in that condition. And so, you know, he is showing some love there in doing the strange act of destruction. But the idea is there are limits because he sets consequences for our behaviors. He did that in the Garden of Eden. He's going to do that at the end of time. And we have to realize that that unconditionality will come at a time when he's going to say, he that is just, just, let him be just still, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still, righteous, righteous. So it's going to come a time when he's going to stand up and there'll be no more time. Proberation will close. Men are trained in disobedience and are fast approaching, what does she say? The limits of God's forbearance and love. We're fast approaching that. Um, and, and it's because of some of the choices that we're making. And God would not be a God of, of a true God and a true divine being if He didn't have any limits, brothers and sisters. We have to have limits in, in what we're doing. This goody goody religion that makes light of sin and that is forever dwelling upon what? When I first read this, I said, What is she saying? that is forever dwelling upon the love of God to the sinner encourages the sinner to believe that God will save him while he continues in sin and knows it to be sin. This is the way that many are doing who profess to believe present truth. Now it's good to focus on the love of God, isn't it? But she's saying something a little different here. She's saying those of us who focus on the love of God and not sharing with them that there is things that's going to happen if you engage in this behavior, this will be the consequence for your choice and not letting them recognize that God will come a point where he will not allow his um, acceptance to continue as the person continues in sin. That's why he said in Jeremiah 14:10, as I mentioned, he will no longer accept them. And sometimes when we present the love of God to people and don't recognize there's limits to that, we can be very, placing people in a real tenuous situation spiritually, and we have to recognize that. It remains true that the prodigal son left the pig pen and his sinful life before his father took him back. Sometimes, the reason I'm reading this is sometimes people have said, what about the prodigal son? Wasn't that an example of unconditional acceptance? We don't read of the father traveling to the city where his son partied apologizing for the legalistic rules which drove the son away, then offering the son an unconditional invitation to return, irrespective of how he lived. Jesus taught no such gospel. What did the prodigal son have to do? Return, but there's another word that starts with an R. Repent. If he didn't repent, what would have happened after that? He would have still come home, but what would have happened to his life? He might have gone back out. He might have taken his father's son love for granted. A lot of things would have happened. So we cannot use that story as an example of unconditional acceptance and love. Actually, there was a condition for God to be able to do anything with us that was meant even before we came into existence. Well, that condition was agreed upon to be met. Do you all know what that is? What was the condition that had to be met? Obedience, but the Bible tells us that before the foundation of the world was laid, Christ decided to do what? I'm kind of paraphrasing it. Give his life. So Christ's life was a condition that was met. Was it not? Do you all understand what I'm saying? only
1: to the ones condition. Otherwise, to obey, I don't have that
0: I in my own That's right. That's right. We have to accept that condition that Christ died for us. This one is, I, I, I always get rebuttals for this because this one is kind of hard because there's some truth there because the Bible in Romans 5:8 does say God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So there's some things we don't have to do but I want you to understand the danger of taking this and carrying it too far because what it does is sometimes it can pervert the gospel and we have to recognize that this unconditional love and acceptance as psychology Psychologists explain it is not applicable to us as Christians. We have to understand as it is applicable based on the Bible. Now, let's look at another concept, needs. Psychologists tell us there are certain needs that we have. And Maslow, remember this hierarchy? How many of y'all remember this? What's at the bottom? Let me test you. That's right. Physiological needs. Do you know what's after that? Safety needs. Love and belongingness needs. Esteem needs, this is where self-esteem comes in. And finally, we will be self-actualized. And the idea behind this is that we have to get all of these needs met in order to be able to move up this hierarchy. If these needs are not met, we cannot be the people that we should be, or as the army says, we cannot be all that we can be. Is there some truth to that? There is some truth to that. If I see a man hungry young on the street, with no clothes, am I going to go to him and start saying, Revelations 14:6 6 through 12 says, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, worship him. Will I say that to him and he's hungry and needs clothes? What did James tell us? If you see your brother. Take care of his exactly, take care of the needs. So there is some truth to this. Again, truth and error. And this has been used in the work world, it's been used in the, um, in the, the educational world, the whole free breakfast idea was based on Maslow's hierarchy, that kids are coming to school hungry, and we can't expect them to um, achieve some of their, like what we'd call under here, fall under here achievement needs, esteem needs, if they're hungry. We need to give them breakfast. And it came from Maslow's idea, um, the idea in work that people need to be, feel that they belong and are, and are accepted in their job and able, be able to be able to for, perform better. That all came from Maslow. There's some truth there. Let's talk about, however, the problem that it could come up to. Now, this, is what, this was Maslow's aim when he was coming up with this. From the beginning, Maslow's aim was to displace moral philosophy and what? Religion with the science of man. He said, throughout history, humanity has looked for guiding values, for principles of of right and wrong outside of itself to a God, to some sort of sacred book. This was Maslow's idea. He said, so I need to come up with a better theory, this idea of needs to really help people be what they should be. And even though there's some truth to what he's saying, we see the basic roots of what he came up with. And Maslow's theories was largely based on Far Eastern thinking, Taoism, Buddhism, et cetera. So let's look at how it's come into the church. This is a woman who says, if you are fortunate to have the unchurched visit your congregation, realize that the best way to ensure that they will return is to do what the church has been called to do, love them. In practical terms, who said that? They read it. This means being sensitive to their felt oh, yeah. needs. We have to fulfill people's felt needs in order for them to come to church and stay in church. Do you all believe that? No. No, you don't. Why? I'm just curious. Well, because
1: a lot of the mega churches, they build on this whole concept of fulfilling
0: their, their needs. And it becomes more of a self-help group. There you than go. The church. There you go. And it's coming into other places, too, not just the megachurches. So this is, some, this is some things that come from that. They tell you how to preach so you can reach their felt needs. Limit your preaching to roughly 20 minutes, because boomers don't have much time to spare. And don't forget to keep your message light. messages light and informal, liberally sprinkling them with humor and personal anecdotes. Because, see, people have needs, There are certain needs, and the needs, if if we're preaching too long and making the sermons too serious, is really not going to get and fulfill some of their needs. So we need to have more sermons on marriage and family, on finances. These sermons are great brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong, but what has happened is that we're pushing out some other things and focusing only on these things. And that's a problem. And then this one, you know of this person, purpose-driven church. We use the style of music that the majority of the people in our church listen to on the radio. They like bright, happy, cheerful music with a strong beat. Their ears are accustomed to music with a strong bass line and rhythm. What's the truth? Did Jesus look at needs at all? He did. The Savior mingled with the men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them and ministers to their needs and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. What's happening sometimes when we get so focused on people's needs that I see happening is that we somehow lose the focus of our mission as a church. We're so into fulfilling people's needs that we forget the little part that says, um, follow me. And I see that happening a lot in our needs-focused mission and, and what's happening in our churches. Yes. Well, you stole my thunder. That's what I was going to say. Thank you. No, thank you, but that is so true. There's a difference between the felt needs and the actual needs. Some of you all might have heard this story by Asherick. And again, Pastor Asherick, I should say, David Asherick. And sometimes I mess these stories up, but I'm going to try my best. He talked about a couple, a woman who lost her child and husband in a car wreck. Did you all hear the story? And a pastor came to their home at that time. What was the felt need? Comfort. Comfort. But guess what? Under their home, there were crossed wires. Those who are are electricians know what that could do, right? Cause a fire. At that time, if if he just ministers to their felt needs, what could have happened? They could die. And that's what I see happening to us in our churches sometimes. We're focusing so much on the felt needs, and we don't recognize there's a fire that's going to be coming upon this world soon. And we need to be able to balance that out. Not only comfort people, but also help them recognize what is coming upon us as a people, as a world. And we need to be able to balance both of those together. The only avenues by which some persons can be reached with the gospel are through the relief of pain and the care for... So we do need to minister to people's needs, but as our dear gentleman just pointed out, needs that are real and not just the the needs that people feel that they have. Do you all understand what I'm saying? Because it can get us focused in the wrong direction. The Christian church has eagerly adopted the language of needs for itself. We now hear that Jesus will what? As though he was some kind of divine psychiatrist or divine detergent as though God were simply to service us. Jesus will meet your every need. I wonder if I should say this. Um, uh, some of our songs are similar to this. Some of our songs just point us to Jesus will will fulfill your need, and we'll do this for you, and do that for you. And we're moving away from songs that are building us up spiritually, and just focusing more on these needs-felt kind of songs. Do you all understand yes. what I'm saying? That's
1: why you need
0: the hymnal. Yeah, we do. The we do. It has a message in each song. It does. And then contemporary songs. There are some contemporary songs, too, we can use that are biblical in basis. So the hymnals and then songs that are biblical in basis. But my problem is when I hear people just saying, um, makes me feel good. what's that? Makes me feel so he good. makes me feel so good. That's right. Or I'm trying to think of some of these songs that we I'm hearing a lot. Same, same things, and it's just about what God can do for me and not teaching us any truths. Someone said, do you think that those were the kind of songs people were singing when they were the flames of fire was around them as the martyrs? No, they were singing things like, I'm sure, A Mighty Fortress. Well, maybe that wasn't around just then because Luther was just writing it. But other of the songs that were there was building them up and helping them deal with these things better. Many Christians believe the humanistic lie that when people's needs are met, they will be good, loving people. Through the influence of humanistic psychology, they believe that people sin because their needs are not met, that should have said. However, scripture does not bear this out. Adam and Eve had it all. Yet they chose to sin. The Bible places God's will and purpose at the center rather than our so-called psychological needs. The angels had everything in heaven, but when Satan went around with that lie, all their needs were met. One-third of them left. So if we're just into fulfilling needs and thinking if we fulfill needs, everything will be okay, history and the Bible and the great controversy tells us differently. It is difficult to see how one can begin with the glory of man or self, including felt needs, and progress to the the glory of God. I'm going to share another pet peeve I have of mine. We have a lot of ministries in our churches these days, don't we? Singles ministries, disabilities ministries, women's ministries, children's ministries, youth ministries, men's ministries, marriage ministry, family ministry. And what I see happening with these ministries is we're becoming so self-focused in them. We're so busy into making sure the singles' needs are met, and the youth's needs are met, and the family's needs are met. And these things are important, but what I see happening is that we're just going around in circles, fulfilling the needs of these various groups, and not recognizing that true healing and empowerment is going to come when we encourage these groups to go out and minister to others in their similar situation. That's a pet peeve of mine as I see these ministries coming. I think they're wonderful. I think they can be helpful, but I think we're just stagnating in a pool when all we do is fulfill their needs. You know, let's make sure we have a a social each night for the young people. Let's make sure we have an event for the single people every week. And I do believe these groups need to be focused on, don't get me wrong, but I see us just wallowing as we continue to feed ourselves. And she tells us somewhere in the testimonies that it makes us weak and sickly. So we really need to rethink what we're doing with these ministries as we're focusing on these needs. I
1: don't think that one group. We're a bunch of little groups mm-hmm. instead of one group working together as a whole. The-
0: right. The- I think that if we took these ministries and we were doing more outreach It wouldn't be as divisive. So I don't want to just throw the whole thing baby out with the bathwater because I think these ministries can be helpful. I think the problem is with the the focus that we have. And as the sister says, it can make us kind of divisive, one group against the other. That's why the Bible tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? all these felt needs you have will be added unto you if we're seeking first the kingdom of god the bible also tells us but my god shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by christ jesus we don't we don't often believe that um this is the ending of this section but i i have so much do you all mind me moving on to the next one and then um, because I have so much that I, I have to share with you all that I just don't want to miss this. Let's talk about emotions. Proverbs seventeen twenty-two and Proverbs fourteen thirty lets us know that emotions are, are important. One of them says, a merry heart doeth, but a broken spirit. It's important for us to have cheerfulness. Then the other one tells us about envy is like rottenness to the bones. So God does not ignore emotions. Okay? In psychology, emotions are primary. For God, emotions are not necessarily primary, but they're not ignored. I was taught, the first thing when you come into my office is for me to assess your feelings. That's what I was taught through graduate school. I want you to draw about your feelings. I want you to write about your feelings. What color would describe your feelings? Is it red? Is it blue? You know, um, um, and you talk to people and you say, I see how that made you feel. You know, Really, feelings-focused. And, and people would leave there feeling better because we're focused on feelings. There's a danger with that, however, because remember when I put up the picture of the brain? And if you're, you're focusing on feelings all the time, you're just titillating that emotional part of the brain, right? You need to move past that, and that's the problem. When I was dealing with sexual abuse survivors and I would focus on feeling, this is a book I had them read, and this was part of it. You may dream of murder or castration, referring to the perpetrators. This is talking to the sexual abuse survivors. It can be pleasurable to fantasize such scenes in detail. Let your heart, let yourself imagine it to your heart's content. I was encouraging my sexual abuse survivors to feel angry towards their perpetrators. And whatever came to your mind, you visualize it, you fantasize it, and you stay on that because they deserve all the angry feelings that you feel was not that sad? That's, the, that, that's what I was doing and called myself a Christian. But in psychology, we're encouraged, when people feel anger and all of that, to really stay there and kind of ruminate about it because we suppress our anger, is what they say. And, and that is true, that we do that, but there are other ways to deal with it. The truth is, Colossians 3.8 tells us um, that we should put away, and I'm kind of going through this because. Our time is running out we should put away anger malice and all of these things the Bible doesn't say that you stay there and you draw about it and write about it and ruminate about it but you need to do something with it and Ephesians 4:31, 32 says that the Sun should not go down on our wrath but it says in the beginning be ye angry and sin not so I used to tell people it's okay to be angry because the Bible says be ye angry and sin not let me throw that out to you if I said that to you what would you say the Bible says, be ye angry. So isn't it okay to be angry? But don't let them, don't go to bed when
1: they are angry. I mean, they go before you go to bed, and it's forget it. You get angry for a moment. Don't carry it over and over
0: and over. So you're saying, get angry for a moment. Don't get it, don't let it carry over and over and over. Anybody else have, has a response to that? Yes?
1: Um, Christ had anger. Yes, he did. But it was righteous anger as to yeah. what was, you know, against...
0: Him. Oops. That's right, exactly. Did you have your hand up? No. Up here, I thought I had this quote that's, let me see if it's gonna... Oh, I don't have it up there. But it tells us that um, the type of anger that Christ has was righteous indignation. And not one, there is not one example in the Bible of Christ being angry because someone did something to him. It was usually when the poor or the oppressed was mistreated or when someone was doing something to attack Christ's character. How many of us can say that's the only times we get angry, when we see people being taken advantage of or someone's doing something against God? I can't say that that's the only time I'm angry. Most of the time when I get angry, it's it's for self-centered reasons. And so when the Bible says, be angry and sit not, it's talking about, if you read the commentator's notes on that, it's talking about righteous indignation, as the sister mentioned. Expressing anger does not invariably alleviate it. On the contrary, it can make you angrier. Do you remember when psychologists used to say you get angry, you should hit a pillow? Research has actually shown that that makes your anger worse. So when we used to tell people, punch a pillow, I used to have a pillow in my office actually, and people who had anger problems, I'd say, punch this pillow a few times. I didn't realize that, but science is actually showing now that when you encourage them to do that, it makes their anger worse. Most research now says that catharsis, letting it all out, isn't helpful and may do what? Increase a person's hostility. Now this is something that a lot of people are doing when Columbine um, came along and all of these things. The grief counselors come in and the kids are, are encouraged to write about and talk about the crisis, right? You, you know the grief counselors come in after these different um, yeah. tr- high school and school tragedies? Now they're finding venting emotions during debriefing after a crisis or a trauma and reviewing experiences repeatedly, repeatedly in the immediate aftermath of a crisis can interfere with the victim's natural adaptive instinct to distance themselves emotionally. So when I come in and you've experienced some kind of crisis or trauma on your job or at school, and I come in and say, talk about it, tell me how you feel, write about it, and I just push you to talk about that, that can actually get into the way of your natural instinct to want to distance yourself emotionally. And distancing yourself emotionally can actually be more healthy at times because we don't always have to have that crisis right in front of our face. God has created that instinct for us that sometimes we need to step back. I actually recently read, how many of y'all have heard, heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? I recently read some studies that are showing that when you go through a trauma and you spend too much time talking about it, you could actually come out worse than if you distance yourself from it. It was the opposite of what I was taught in school. When people came to me with post-traumatic stress disorder, I was taught have them write about it, talk about it in therapy, get it out, because that's what will cause the healing. But I read research recently that kind of fits what we see in the Bible. Don't push people to talk about it. When they're ready to do so, they will do so. So we really have to watch these things coming out. And I love that science is confirming God's way now. I just love it as I read the science that's confirming his way. Because it's showing that his way, it's not showing, we don't need them to show it. But it's supporting that his way is the best way. She tells us in God's amazing grace, it is not the petty feelings and emotions that are to be examined. We are to look away from self to who? And that's the problem I have with just getting people to focus on their emotions a lot. Is just to focus too much on self. And as you focus more and more on self, you can't get better. Because the more self-centered we are, the sicker we are. Actually, one psychiatrist say we have so much sickness in our society because we're too self-centered. Now, I'm not saying there are some Christians who take the opposite extreme and will just deny and minimize emotions because they want to be so Christ-like. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying asking God to help you deal with the emotions in the way that fits his Bible, biblical principles, and not the way psychiatrists say. I'm not going to move on to the next one with guilt. Uh, I'm going to leave. We have about seven minutes, and I want to leave to um, ask if you have any questions about what we've covered thus far, the last session or this session. Anybody have questions they'd like to ask in these seven minutes? Yes. Could I go over that? Okay. All right. Let's go back to actually the quote. There was a quote. Did you remember that quote I put up from Ellen White? was testimonies to ministers. Okay, let's see if we can find it. Oh, come on, where are you? She says, oh, here we go. Men are training in disobedience and are fast approaching the limit of God's forbearance and love. When will that limit be shown? say that again when the
1: cup is up.
0: and say that practically what does that mean she says when the cup is filled up okay when they reject God's law the cup is filled up and what's gonna happen then Bible students evil come, evil come the plagues are gonna fall Okay? Consequences. That's right. So what, when, we saw, when she says the limit of God's forbearance and love, my understanding of that is the limit is going to be shown by the things that are going to happen in life in, in, individually and the things that are going to ha- be happening in the world. When God says it is done, that's going to be the limit of his love. I don't know how else to explain that. I, maybe somebody can help me explain it a little better. Yes,
1: sir? Well, I don't know if I can- much I just, <laughs> in my research, um, I think one of the problems we have is the definition of love.
0: Ah, okay. And so, as
1: we look at the definition in Scripture of love, uh, there is actually um, a limit to where He will destroy, and that is a loving act. That's because yes. In the spirit of prophecy, she talks about the people that will be lost, how there will be a void mm. in the heart of God throughout eternity. Mm. And so you see that aspect of love of how God views us, and you know throughout eternity will never change. Yes, right. The drunkard and the preacher of righteousness, their value in God's eyes is totally the same. It's yes. Equivalent. Yes. But He will have to eradicate sin one day, and okay. that's also part of love. It but is. Psychology has so much
0: twisted, twisted our minds on what love on this is. Definition that, yeah, yes. We Thank you so much. Yes, I saw someone's hand in the back and then sister. Go ahead. I was just gonna
1: say that, to me, it, it's an instance where God is now showing us how much he loves us. I mean, his patience is just unlimitless almost. And so many times, we do things, and whatever we do that answers him is really saying, you know, we really don't love you, God. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I, I should be repeating it before, for audio verse. The limit, what you're saying is the limit up for his love will be reached when we're saying, I don't want you anymore. Right. And he's going to just say, You know, I can't force myself on you anymore. You don't want me. So th- that's the rejection part. This sister here, and then the sister next to you.
1: The book of Deuteronomy.
0: The book of Deuteronomy, okay.
1: Explains
0: the blessings and the curses. Explains the blessings and the curses, okay. I'm just repeating because it's on audio, it's going to be tape for audio verse. And
1: that's what is the love. Okay.
0: Okay, if you follow me and you love me, keep my commandment. And what was the last part? If not, then we'll reap the consequences of it. Okay, yes, sister. Well,
1: I was just going to say that there comes a point
0: when what we consider unconditional acceptance and love becomes more of enablement. Mmm, well, powerful. What we consider unconditional acceptance and love becomes enabling. We're encouraging that person in their particular dysfunctional behavior. Powerful. Thank you, yes.
1: Uhhuh. God's love is unconditional. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Now, his blessings are not. do get the two confused. Okay. It's like the Deuteronomy, I think that's a we gotta be cautious, because it implies that if we do what he says he's gonna love us, and that's not biblical. Okay. So if he's
0: going to do what he's, that that we should not, I'm repeating it for, for the audio verse. Deuteronomy 28 is not, his his love is not conditional, but his blessings are. Exactly. That's what you're but saying.
1: Really okay. It says, I will bless you if. Right. But it didn't say, I will love you if. if. It says, I will bless you. So his love is unconditional. Yes. No love. His love has no limit. And there will come a time when his blessings, and because of his love, that he will destroy sin, and mm-hmm. that means Okay. But right now, until that time comes, he does love us. And he loves so much, he wants to bring us to a higher level. We have to be really careful when we start saying, well, you know, if you do this or that, he'll love you. Right. You know, then he's going to
0: stop loving you, because that's not biblical. Right. I'm repeating it for audio verse. I don't know if they heard. that. It is not biblical for us to say, if he does such and such, he will not love us anymore. We have to be careful with that. That's what your thought is. Okay. Yes. And this was Exodus what? Let me just repeat it for the tape. Exodus 20, verse,
1: oh, verse 6. Sorry. Oh, this is part of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. I mean, right. uh... Verse 6 says, And showing mercy unto thousands yeah. of them
0: who that love, love me, me and keep
1: my commandments. But the point that he's making in the sermon is that God loves us. Right. And it's to understand that love right. brings the rest of it. But first, he loves.
0: For God loves us. Right. And, and we have and to we understand. Understanding that love, mm-hmm right because of, but because we love. okay I have a, a comment to make that I think we, we this is what happens <clears throat> remember I said we're talking about the secular psychological view of unconditional love which is based on the premise that we are innately good mm-hmm. when we use secular psychological terms we have to be careful brothers and sisters and I know it's hard to really grasp this, because we're so inundated with this stuff. But unconditional love and acceptance, based from the secular psychological view, is based on people being born good. Do you remember what I said at the beginning? If you use that term loosely and not recognize the roots of it, we can, we can really bring ourselves into some trouble. We have to recognize the roots when we throw those terms out because the roots will lead us to some dangerous places. So I do believe God's love is, I like to say God's love is long-suffering, God's love is forbearing, God's love is merciful, God's love is gracious, but maybe it's just me because I'm so rooted. I I was taught this so much. When I hear that word unconditional love, my my eyes, my head just go boom, 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 you know, all kind of flashlights and, and lights go off because I know where this word comes from. Maybe a person who doesn't know where it comes from, it doesn't affect them as much to use it. I'm just cautioning you to understand the roots of these words that we just throw out. Glibly. That's, my, that's what my prayer is that you will lead here, leave here with. Yes, and then we'll end.
1: Even if I choose to die and disobey, will God still love
0: me? Even if I choose to die and disobey, God will still love me. Would yes. He miss
1: me if I die by my own choice?
0: Will He what?
1: Miss- Would He miss me yes. if I die? Yes. The brother
0: said there's going to be a void there. Yeah. So that his vo- his, to me, that says His love is long-suffering, forbearing, gracious, merciful. But my preference is, let's look at what this word means. Yes, and then we'll end. Maybe we
1: need to just drop the
0: unconditional. I don't think that's ever found in the Bible. It is not. It is not ever found. In fact, I did a search. Actually, your father did it for me. Oh, man. I'm so glad you brought that up, Dr. Nelson. Unconditional love and um, spirit of prophecy. She talks about... Um, Unconditional election. She talks about unconditional pardon. She talks about how we have to unconditionally accept the truth. She talks about, um, uh, I've mentioned unconditional election, unconditional healing, unconditional engagements, but nowhere in there is the word unconditional love or acceptance come up and based on what secular psychology is saying. So God's love is forbearing, it's long suffering, it's gracious, but the unconditional part we really need to question. And that's how i'm going to end this and we just go back and my prayer is that you go back and and put some study and prayer into this and not just use these words without recognizing where they come from Amen? amen all right let's have prayer father we thank you so much for your truth we thank you for the bible that we can use to compare everything that comes our way. Father, may we set aside our personal opinions and biases, including myself, and ask you, Father, to give us the truth as it is in Jesus. We just praise your name for what you allow us to learn, and may we continue to grow and study based on all that you've given to to us that we can go in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: This media was brought to you by Audioverse,